This week's episode is proudly brought to you by Equidel. Equidel's property market research tool, the Equidel Matrix, identifies future high-performing property markets. They do everything from the initial coffee catch-up to ensuring your investment property is rented. Find and subscribe to them on Facebook by searching Equidel or find them online at equidel.com.au. Equidel, invest in property, invest properly. Fiercely competitive, yet strategically measured at heart, Simon Rogers spent two decades dominating on the grass for Adelaide Lutheran, but it's his off-field contributions that will be his true legacy. Leading the charge in the club's redevelopment, while also launching the club's first junior football program, we're now 35 years into Simon's journey with the club he loves, but this is just the beginning. All right, so welcome to episode three of Bulldog for Me. Uh, one of your co-hosts here, Scott Volker, alongside James Zubrinich. Hello. Uh, tonight we've got the honour of into interviewing uh, one of the club's all-time, one of the club's all-time contributing members, Simon Roger. Uh, but Simon, before we get into things too much, and also welcome tonight. Thank you for uh, hosting us at your house. Pleasure. Um, you're doing a bit of research um, throughout the week, and you're one of three players at the club to have played 300 plus games, uh, alongside Nick Crewat, who's back at the club this year. Yes, uh, at age 50, still around, training too, still training, playing with the C grade, and Chris Yankee. Um, now, going through this, you, you played for uh, in the 22 years between debuting in 1986 and your last game in 2008. Um, You'd played with 75% of the club's entire uh, list that's played in the 50-plus years at this club. That Just to put that into context, it's not just 75%. That is 1,323 people of the 1,758 players that have walked through the, the front doors at Adelaide Lutheran. That is an ins- like incredible statistic. What do you make of that, Simon? Uh, I get very depressed when you <laughs> that. that. That suggests I'm pretty old. I'm hoping it's not... Ex- the exact number of players I've played with on the field, but actually who was involved with the club at the who, time. Who was so involved with the club? That's well, slightly better. <laughs> From uh, A grade through to, we had an under-17s team in the uh, in the late 80s. Hmm. Um, love to get that back up and running at some stage. And we'll, we'll touch, on the, touch on the juniors with yourself a little bit longer um, pretty soon. But um, yeah, if we go back to 1986, your first year at the club um, came from Concordia. Uh, started playing footy in year 12 after playing soccer your entire life. Do you want to just walk us through how you ended up at the club? Yeah, well, you're right. I played soccer ever since I was a little kid um, and uh, quite a lot, actually. And when I got to Concordia, though, they didn't have a soccer team. Um, I kept playing for other schools and clubs and what have you. But by the time I got to year 12, I thought I just wanted to play something with my mates. And so I joined the first 18 in year 12 at Concordia and halfway through the season or sometime through the season, um, some Adelaide Lutheran blokes came out to train with us. And I reckon it was Foss who was the coach at the time and Nathan Swick, who was a captain, and maybe a couple of others, I can't remember. And um, and that was the first I ever heard about the club uh, at all. And I had even thought about playing footy after I left school. And, and over the off-season after uh, finishing Year 12, I bumped into a guy called Jeff Carl who said you should come out and have a bit of a kick and uh, I didn't really think about it. I just got myself and a mate of mine from school and we went out and went out onto the Oval, which wasn't really an Oval at the time, uh, <laughs> in the middle of summer. Yeah, Glad's mentioned that. He um, said although they moved to the South Parklands in the early 80s there, when they got there, the, it was a swamp basically, the Oval. 
I'm sure it was similar to that when you got there. Curious to know though, like, because I'm a guy who um, I didn't play footy since. I just just talking to you before off air, but um, I didn't play footy from under 15s till 2016. So that's like about a 10 year gap. And I just came out just to play with some mates and a bit of a change. You being a soccer player, like, had you even had a kick of the footy or was it that new to your footy? Oh, I would have had a kick at, you know, lunchtime. Yep. Um, and I probably filled in for a few games, maybe in other years of school, maybe in year 11 as well, um, whenever I didn't have a soccer game perhaps. Yep. Um, uh, but I think soccer is actually a really good way to get ready for a bit of footy. It, it taught me to kick on the other side of my you know, non-preferred mm-hmm. side. Um which was really valuable, and uh, it actually it's a much better game to help you understand space and go to the right space and run into space and kick to space and whatever. So it helped me in, in the long term, but it took me a few years to get the hang of footy. I hadn't really you know, thought about that until today, really. Yeah, interesting. Um, and I guess like the other thing was too, did it take you like a long time to adjust to the game? You know, there is contact in soccer, but not like footy where you throw throwing someone to the ground. Yeah, um, it's fair to say the first seven, many years probably I was an outside player. Uh, that's the polite way to put it. Uh, <laughs> and I was faster and younger, obviously, that which made sense. Um, but that's the, the, the age-old problem with growing old. You, you, by the time you're old, you're experienced, you know how to play, but you, you're too old to actually play it. So um, it took me three, four, five years to get a bit of a hang of what my footy game was probably going to be best modelled on, I reckon. All right. And, I mean, boy, did you develop. So I'm, going to, I'm just going to read back some of your uh, statistics from your playing career. 314 games, so that's second overall in the club. Um, 280 goals, which is eighth overall. Um, you know, best player vote, 680, so that's all-time leader. That's number one. Um, you know, we talked about your years active, 86 through to 2008. Two-time premiership player um, in the A's. Six-time BNF winner. So you've done pretty well the lot there. What? How do you reflect on your own playing career? Oh, what do you make of it all? I mean, I'm happy with all that. I suppose the number of games doesn't really matter. That just means you're a bit lucky with injuries, I think, and you hung around. Um, and uh, I'm pretty proud of some of those outcomes, I suppose. But um, I also have a little bit of regret for not, you know, even trying even harder, or even, to be honest, starting footy earlier. Because um, as I said before, it might take four or five years to get the hang of it. Yep. Um, and that was four or five years I would have, you know, loved to have back. Yeah. Right. So, do you sort of think like um, previous to that, they were sort of wasted years or lost years or something? Oh, in like context that? of footy only. Yeah. 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 Interesting. All right. So, if you move on to the premierships, and this is obviously a massive point of interest for the club. We've been, thankfully, a very successful club throughout the years, and. Um, I think just after you joined, we went through a bit of a, a golden patch uh, between the A's and the B's. Found a fair bit of success there. And um, your first premiership that you played in, um, was that ever as well in 1988? Yeah. Yeah, so that was Hope Valley in A5s. Um, that seemed like to be a – it turned out to be a pretty cruisy win, but, I mean, score's going to always be a bit deceiving, especially in grand finals. It can be a bit of a slog. It was 44 points in the end. Um 
But and we'll touch on this guy here. Uh, talking about him post game, uh, a guy called Greg Denton, also known as Paleface, seemed to be your opponent throughout the day and had a bit of a vendetta out against you. I don't know if that was a, a tactic or it was you pissed him off or something really early on. But um, just was he just niggling you or was, what oh, was he doing all that? Well, how long have you got, boys? An hour? I could talk about nine eighty eight for an hour. Um, and can I? Like, at least yeah, start. Go, I'll, go I'll go give it. you the context because it, it does link into Run Pales quite, quite well. But we, in 88, we were, we'd come off 87. I think we finished third, maybe. I'm not sure. But we were probably one of the better teams. Hope Valley had come into the comp a year or two earlier and the Amateur League had put them in at a lower grade than they were really should have been. And they completely demolished the opposition the year or two before, didn't lose a game, won the flag. And they came up to our Div 5 at the time it was in 88 and come round five or six, they had been undefeated and they were smashing sides. We were also undefeated. And so it was sort of like a top-of-the-table clash at that stage. And uh, uh, towards the end of the third quarter, we were seven or eight goals down at their ground. And during that first three quarters, they were just thugs. And Pales was one of them. Uh, he was one of the worst. Um, I remember sitting on another guy. I was resting in the forward pocket and he was elbowing me in the face and the ball was up the other end of the ground, right in front of their crowd. They were loving it. And we thought, my God, this is you know, this is just shocking. But the problem was they were really, really good at footy. Yeah. Um, and they were smashing us on the field and, and in the fights. And I reckon that might have even been the day that one of them, might have even been Pals, I'm not sure, uh, completely king hit Brer. Um, I might get the, the days mixed up, but at one stage that happened. Uh, and in the last quarter, we just turned it on. It was still the best game that I've been involved with in my life, even better than premierships, and we won by, I don't know, a goal or something. We just just um, rolled them. And then uh, by the time we played them in the second round at home in the season, it was the middle of winter, um, they hadn't lost any other games, and we had a big dive. We'd been losing games left, over, left right, and centre. So we were the underdogs again. We beat them at home. Uh, we had to win the last four or five games of the mine round just to even make the finals. Yeah. Um, and we did, and we didn't play Hope Valley, I don't think, until the grand final because we started in the elimination. Yeah. So that that's an incredible state in itself. It was nine straight wins to the premiership on the way through. Oh, it was nine, yeah, was it? Yeah, so okay. five in the regular season. You get through the fourth finals. Um, so essentially come from the heavens to take home ultimate glory on the end, last day of September. Um, but talk us through, like, Rolling up to uh, the grand final in 1988, obviously there's a whole lot of hoo-ha that's been on going in the past, so there's a bit of um, rivalry really establishing. Rock up to the ground, muddy conditions, really, really bad. We're down at Mitcham, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Hawthorne Oval at Mitcham there, yeah. yeah. So where, where the A's and B's played in the grand final last year, and mm-hmm. um, you can see how boggy that ground can get. Um, so just walk us through like walking onto the ground for the first time. Well, Hawthorne Oval probably still is, but it's got turf wickets and they were, you know, one of the stickiest, muddiest uh, patches going around. So, um, And that's where the centre square was as well. So you didn't want to be anywhere near that or it impacted the game a bit. And it was raining and, and it's quite thick and soft grass. But um, I, I can't tell you a lot of the detail. We just went and played. I didn't feel – I mean, I was only – I wasn't even 20 at the yeah. time. So it's one of those games you just sort of – yeah, it just happens. <laughs> but um, there was enough niggle and enough... Uh, the fact that we're underdog, I think, helps a lot. You don't have huge expectations. And uh, we just went and obviously played really, really well. 
And honestly, some of those sides at the time, and I actually respect Hope Valley now, and including people like Pales eventually, yeah. um, they're the better wins when you're playing against a side that's uh, been that way in the past. That's who you want to beat, right? So this bloke, Greg Denton, he's giving you what for um, in the GF. And then reading Glad's book, he shows up to the club the following year. Explain it. Like, talk us through that. How's yeah. that work? Well, I was actually there and I, I was a meeting, some sort of management meeting. And, uh, and, and this was before the club rooms were even built. We were having a meeting somewhere in, in the change rooms, I think. And I had my back to the door, but someone's looked up and just looked like they've just gone ashen-faced. <laughs> and and Pales has just turned up and we thought he was there to bloody kill us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is it. It's all over. Yep. Um, and he just said, oh, I was just wandering past and I thought I'd, want to come in and see, I want, I want to have a kick with you. And we didn't know whether that was just the smiling assassin sort of thing before he did kill us or um, or not, but he, he was genuine. He just ready to, to, to turn a under the leaf and, and have a kick with the, with us, and he did. Yeah, right. Did he say as to why? Like, oh, He, he told me afterwards as well that um, it's not like he had an epiphany, but he, he probably reflected on his own sort of career and how he'd been. He was actually a handy player. And that was the classic Hope Valley. He was he was the epitome of Hope Valley. They were really good at footy, but they were thugs. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think he just reflected on that. And and I don't know why he whether he was in the area, whether he was someone was playing netball across the road. Maybe his wife was. Yep. And a bit of a spur of the moment, he thought he'd just have a chat. Okay. And you, what? How was your relationship with him as time went on? Oh, good. I mean, I became a good mate of his. And and when he passed away. Um, I think it might have been eight, ten years ago. I spoke at his funeral and I got on with his wife and his kids and um, and I visited him a lot when he was sick and it was really quite sad. But he loved the club and he had a Guernsey of ours and a Guernsey of Hope Valley's on his uh, on his coffin. I just pushed ours a little bit across the top of it. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, we might just touch back on him and there's some other people who were involved in these premierships we want to talk about as well, but I, I will just shoot across to the 91 GF because this is an incredible grand final. Um, and when Glad's told us about it, I couldn't believe it. Um, so you're playing uh, Smosh in A4. Scoreline is 17 goals 1 to Adelaide Lutheran to 14 goals 14 Smosh. So, I mean, just goes to show straight kicking wins your games. That's 103 to 98. Yeah, 103 to 98. So it's a five-point victory. Now, Glad's told us who he sus- suspected kicked the point that day. Do you remember who kicked the point? Yeah, yeah, I know. It was my brother. <laughs> <laughs> what was the fallout of that? Surely you ripped into him after the game. Well, I still do. Yeah, and because he's been dining out on the whole game for thirty years, because uh, he that? kicked the winning goal. Ah, <laughs> uh, there we go. And uh, and my only comeback is well, I've got two comebacks. Uh, one, you you did kick the point, and it was a set shot, and he should have kicked the goal, and only missed by probably a yard um, early in the game. And my other comeback is I ask him who kicked the ball to him to let him win, kick the winning goal. And <laughs> so, he knows it. No one else does. <laughs> so was it just a game where, like, what, everything just clicked? Everything that came off the boot was just finding its way through? Or? Oh, we actually didn't play that well that day. Like, we were the favourites. This is why it's much better being an underdog a bit often. Um, and they played hard. And, and uh, uh, I think the way Foss described it later is that um, – it wasn't luck that we kicked 17-1. Most of our shots, almost all of our shots were in the zone, you know, 30 to 40 out in that sort of uh, centre area. Um, so they were easier shots to kick. So it wasn't luck. Um, we should have played a bit better, but, but we were the best side over the year and we kicked the last three. 
Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, well, if, if Chris kicked the first point at the start of the game, was that like first, second quarter? Oh, no, no. It was his second quarter, I second think. Second quarter, I, I yeah. Remember. So I was going to say, that's going to be a good what, 10, nine goals straight in a row at least to finish off the game. That I mean, as an opposition player, that's absolutely demoralising. Yeah. I, I remember meeting a few of them at a pub uh, years later, like years, and one of them recognised me. I think he was the back pocket. <laughs> and he was still grieving. <laughs> <laughs> Memories like elephants. The previous year you'd lost a prelim. Did that help you spur on the following year to get, get to the granny and win it? Well, I reckon uh, we'd lost the prelim the previous two years. Okay. So in 89, and that was one of my, um, I suppose, low lights because in 89 we beat Hope Valley in the first semi or whatever and then we, and I got a bad corky. I went out and celebrated too much and I didn't treat it well and I missed the prelim. In 89, and uh, we were seven goals up against Iggy's halfway through the third quarter, and we lost. Jeez. Uh, and I was on the, on the boundary line feeling a bit guilty. Um, and that was a really good quality standard that year with, I think, Kenilworth won at the end. So in 1990, um, we, I think we dipped out of the prelim. That's right, because Teetree Gully and Modbury, another two teams yeah. had come into the comp a year or two earlier at the mm. lower levels again that the Amateur League used to do. And they were the best. They were smashing everyone. And we actually competed quite well. Yeah. Um, but we got dusted up in the that prelim. Um, oh, no, we got dusted up in the sec, second semi against Tea Tree Gully and then lost the prelim to Modbury. Yeah. And it, so it did fire us up. But we were around the mark for two years and that does help spur you on. Sure. So if we go get a bit closer to 1991, a um, bit of a recruitment strategy went ahead with the club, managed to pull in um, some pretty big names for the club. Uh, moving forward, who ended up uh, contributing a long period of time, both for, at the club, but also really importantly for the 91 grand final. Uh, picked up guys like Mike Freebo, um, who was best on ground, Ruckman in that 91 grand final, uh, and uh, Jan Overden, uh, Wes ba- Brake, Daryl May, just a couple of guys to name. Um, and also a couple of guys who played B grade as well who were really important in the B grade because 91 was a, a double, pre- double premiership. premiership. Yeah. yeah. So um, did you have anything to do with the recruitment strategy or was it you just a beneficiary? And what was it? What was the recruitment? Yeah, no, I, I wasn't really that involved in the recruitment. I think um, I, I know that Wes and Daryl came through connections with Andy Cooper who was with us at the time. Um, and they, they were mates from him from Foss Camden they used to play for. Um Jan and Foss was probably the driving guy behind that that recruitment. I don't know how it all worked, but uh, but but Jan was a funny one. Like he's um, he was a very good player. He'd already been suspended for many many weeks when he in his earlier stages of his career. <laughs> he was rock solid. He was a, a great mark, a beautiful kick, um, and uh, and and he still hit people, you know, uh, whenever he wanted. Um, and then <laughs> shrug his shoulders to the umpire and say, "What? You know, what are you going to do about it?" Uh, and I had to defend Jan years later when he was umpiring. Yeah. Oh, have you come to that? Oh, that's not that Jan, is it? <laughs> yeah, Jan. Is that the very same? Oh, no. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I've seen Jan call a deliberate rush behind in C grade before in about C6 <laughs> or C7. Yeah, yeah. I was like, mate, you can't be doing that. Yeah. Uh, I think Nick Creole's got a league best and Ferris to thank for Jan as well by the sounds of it. Oh, no question. <laughs> <laughs> did those, um, those guys that came into the club, though, were they just, you know, like what did they add to the side? Like, were they absolute guns? Did they bring a different harder edge from somewhere or what did they add to oh, the team? No offence to those guys. They were great, all great players, but it was just added depth. Um, yep. So it wasn't 
like anyone particularly just drag the team across the line. It just added depth. And that probably helps explain why the B-grade won. Because the B-grade in 91, that's one of the better wins I've seen. In fact, our B-grade's got a bit of a reputation for winning grannies when they're not favourite. And that was one of them, I remember. And Adelaide Uni, from memory, were the, you know, yep. the hardy lost the game. Um, and uh, and I think that's what happens. You bring in the players that are at that A-grade level. Um, it just beefs up the depth. Do you remember... Do you remember your stat or how you did on grand final day in 91? Me personally? Yeah, you personally. Uh, I wouldn't have his stats. No? I, no, I kicked a couple well, of goals. Yeah, you kicked three goals and was second best. I just thought I'd okay. chuck that in there to pump you <laughs> up a bit. Oh, you're <laughs> reading my notes beautifully, sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I suppose moving forward, uh, while you were around that time, you started actually involving yourself off the field of the club. So you would have been a young in your young 20s, early 20s at that stage. Um, you had stints as ultimately as a president for about seven years, uh, but you're also treasurer before that, uh, a committee member. Um, you, you've basically been involved with the club at some level of capacity for 35 years, um, both at the the football club and then helping form the actual sports club, where you had the we've got the three codes falling underneath that, um, and maybe more importantly as well, trying to get the juniors back up and running again because you've identified the, the uh, I suppose, the lifeblood of the club or the club's future. Um, what, what's your lessons that you've taken from y- your work off-field with the club? Oh, lessons. Um, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take on too much that you can't deliver. Uh, it's really hard because... Um, the club at certain stages needed certain things to happen and, and you just got to chip in and, and get it done um, and you got to be patient. So uh, whether it's the juniors or introducing the netball club or this work on the facilities, the redevelopment, it doesn't just happen over one off-season. Um, so, you know, it's 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 a big commitment um, and, yeah, there are patches of time when I was, I'd, I'd had a gutful. Uh, and, in fact, in the early, mid, when was it, mid-90s, I took a couple of years off. I was only going to take a year off and went and played elsewhere because I was doing committee stuff and all this extra stuff plus on the field um, and needed a breather. So you just got to be careful how much you absorb. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up. You played a couple of years at Lockleys, yeah? Yep. So you said like that was just for a fresh start somewhere else maybe. What drew you back to the club ultimately? I, I was always coming back. Okay. Um, so I, I just said everyone at, at the time, I said, I'm just going to have a year off, um, just play footy so I can just play footy and not worry about anything else. And I had some mates playing at Lockleys. Um, well, I, I was originally going to go to Handorf, but I went up there middle of summer for pre-season training and it was, I don't know, it felt like it was nine degrees and windy <laughs> and raining. And I said, if that's what Handorf's like in the middle of summer, uh, no chance. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I had a really good year, the first year at Lockleys, so I stayed for one more year, And uh, but I was always coming back. So. Okay. And what were they a higher div at the time or something? Or? Well, well, they were, but that was also the time the Amateur League split up into two divisions, um, and the division that, that Lockleys and Adelaide Luthen were in um, had all the uh, so-called amateur clubs, so the St. Peter's and the Shocks and the Scotches and Brighton and those guys. Um, so it was the Div 1 I played in of those guys um, and uh, it was a good standard for me to play in at the time. Yeah. I don't want to bang on it too long, but do you feel like um, you fitted right into that level of footy? Yeah. I I, I ended up, myself personally, I played better 
when the standard was better. Mm-hmm. And I was never that good when we were smashing opposition. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I just, going back to the administration stuff, I mean, you were there for the um, inception of the sports club. What drove that decision? Why did you, as a footy club, suddenly decide we need to be a whole sports board or can you take us behind the development of that in the first place? Yeah, well, I think um, probably we had introduced netball several years earlier, well, quite a few years earlier, but uh, like a lot of community clubs out there, they've got different codes, have got actually different committees and different constitutions and they're completely separate. There's a lot of silos going on. And we could see that there was a few potential silos developing and and just purely around volunteer resources as a minimum, um, it was just going to be inefficient. And particularly with the facility redevelopment as a, a long-term option, it made a lot more sense to also combine as one club, uh, be on the one one team and the same page. Um, and there was no reason to have separate clubs, really, uh, when we're all sort of part of the same environment. Yeah. Because, uh, like, for me, when I first got to the club, I just thought of Adelaide Lutheran as a footy club. And it actually took me a while to realise we're actually a whole sports club, you know. Um, so for maybe if, you know, if there's a few new guys at the club now, what is it the sports club actually do? What's what's their responsibility among the codes? Probably the best way to describe it, I think, is that, that the, the codes are responsible for just playing the sport and playing well and trying to win premierships um, and developing talent. Um, but the club itself is then the one that provides the facilities and the environment and the social area uh, to allow those codes to, to operate in. So in our case, it's the club rooms, the oval, the lights, the bar, um, the kitchen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but also the club's got an ability to, to probably reach a broader community um, for recruitment down the track and also for sponsorship. So how do you think the club, uh, the sports club is going? We're almost 10 years in, eight years in now. Um, there was obviously once the club was actually formed, there's a, a bunch of things that we wanted to get checked off. Facilities is one of them. Um, getting the juniors up and running again, another one, a further opportunities for the club. Where do you see the club sitting at, at the moment? I think it's taken too long to get the whole sports club culture really anchored. Yep. Um, and that's that's no one's fault. It's just that takes a little while, yeah. um, and and probably uh, is justification for trying to do it because it was no way that there was any chance of having a common culture and common effort if uh, we didn't have this structure. So it's taken a while. Um, I think though that the more that we can have joint, um, uh, whether it be events or communications or father son mother daughter type experiences netballers playing footy you know netballers having their, their boys play footy or daughters and and mixing up that way it just over time it just happens yeah so what's the next thing for the sports club what's the next stage well as we all know it's the big major redevelopment that there's on the cards um uh and that's been worked on for many years already uh and i remember being at stolly's place years ago um, talking about the sports club and the redevelopment. Of course, Stolly being Stolly, he started designing the building. I said, mate, this, it's a bit early to do that. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, a, few more, a few more steps to go. Uh, and uh, uh, I think the best way to describe it is that at the beginning, I thought it was going to be really, really hard to get the council to support 
development will in the parklands because uh, they've got a history of not doing so. Um, and I thought it'd be a bit easy to get the money. Uh, but I've been wrong. It's the opposite. <laughs> we've worked really hard. We've got the council on board, at least in a, an approval sense. Um, and now we're just... Uh, Roll the sleeves up. We just got to get some cash. Yeah. So how like we've got this fundraising going on behind the scenes, a couple of other things going on. What's the the figure that we as collectively as a club club have to to get to to essentially get the ball rolling a little bit further? Well, we always knew that the the whole redevelopment when you when you factor in club rooms, fields, and they're going to be realigned, um, better irrigation, lighting. Uh, and associated bits and pieces, you can't do it all in one hit, right? Um, physically, but also financially, you got to stage it. Um, so the first stage, as ev- most people probably know, is the lights, um, and we've even broken that down into stage one A and stage one B. And um, uh, that particular stage to get the lights up, subject to earning certain grants, um, uh, is going to be requiring our club to find ninety-five grand. Um, so that's the target that we set a couple of months ago and, and, and launched to everybody. And I think as we sit, it's about 30, yep. um, which is a good start, but it's only the start. Uh, and if we get that 95, uh, we'll be able to complete the, um, the, the full stage one uh, with the lights, albeit we might still be able to redirect some of the funds to some field development in addition to um, to the lights as well. So just for those who haven't been to the club maybe in the past month or so, uh, just describe what's actually going on at that northern ground. Well, the, the, the fields, it's a bit like an L-shaped, as you know, um, and uh, all of a sudden we've got four massive towers <laughs> um, and they make no sense if you're just looking at the positioning of the current fields. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dead, dead set look <laughs> like they're taken straight out of Adelaide Oval at the moment as yeah. well. Twice the height of the other ones, like yeah. the existing. Yeah, towers. and we're excited yeah. with the other ones. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and and these are enormous. They don't even have uh, fully um, uh, lit with all the globes yet. We couldn't fund that in stage one yep. A, um, and uh, and they're enormous. But if you look at the four poles that are there, um, they largely reflect uh, the positioning of a new main oval. Yep. So the existing main oval that you that we've all played footy on is going to be not the main oval and it's going to be shuffled south towards Green Hill Road and the current northern field where there's soccer is going to turn into the new main uh, footy new space. Yep. Um, and then the the, the north uh, eastern area is just going to be a third a third oval as well which will also be lit when we get another couple of towers up. Yep. And like this is a huge opportunity for the club because we can obviously hire it out to, to other codes um, add some extra revenue into the club that way as well. But it just, I suppose, adds a little extra more, I suppose, professionalism, a little more extra vibe to the actual the precinct as well. Um, and, yeah, like you said, it's only stage one of what hopefully will be a, a multi-stage sort of complex that will involve new club rooms, car parking, etc. Um, so, yeah, I know ex- exciting times early in the piece, real early in the piece. And But we'd also, I think it's, it's probably an apt time to actually just maybe shout out to some of the guys that are really kind of 
uh, digging deep with this at the moment. So we've got Simon obviously in front of us who's um, taking control of a lot of this stuff. But he's also got Tim Stoles now, uh, Wayne Gladigo, Mark Borgus as well, um, doing a lot of lot of work behind the scenes just to try and, I suppose, get the club to where we where the club would love it to be, but also to give players, the current playing community, a bit of a, a better opportunity to succeed in both, um, I suppose, sporting and social sort of settings. Yeah, the thing, like, talking with Glad's... Um in his interview, he just talked about how much of a game changer it was when they moved to the South Parklands. And like from talking with him and reading the book, the thing that really stands out to me that Adelaide Lutheran's never been this like powerhouse club in footy in Adelaide. They've always really struggled. They went from being, you know, essentially a footy club running out of people's cars at a high school oval. Then they did move to the South Parklands, but you know, it was pretty modest change rooms and built on a swamp. Pretty modest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with maybe, I think, what did Glad say? There was a couple lights maybe yeah. to light, light up the oval. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we can all agree. Now it's like, I love playing footy at the club and stuff, but the club rooms need a bit of TLC, you know? <laughs> so I can't, like, it just, to me, as a guy who's been here for a little while now, with all this redevelopment stuff going on, I just can't imagine what a game changer that would be for the club. Not only for the guys currently there, but it's viability going into the future. Um, and I'm sure you as a guy who's working hard is, you know, can see that. Yeah, well, I think it's the, the key thing that's going to make sure we're around for another 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are a bit of a different club for a few reasons, but the main one is we don't really have a community suburb, feeder college, feeder school, community. feeder communities, or a council that's like a community council that, that get around their local sporting club. So um, we're, we're batting uphill um straight away but it's a great location it's a great space and the opportunity to to have a place where people can go and and build it and they will come is pretty much the strategy uh but for it for it to work it's more than just finding the money it's actually we got to make sure we're ready to run it um and so we got to smarten up uh run our own club right now even better um be ready to run something bigger down the track um, be prepared to welcome other um, uh, users and share the space uh, to make it all work. And uh, it, it will be a very different place. Uh, and our challenge is to for it to be a different place to go to but not lose our identity as a club. Yeah. Um, I suppose like – and. The club room redevelopment is going to be, I suppose, a couple of years down the track, so it's not going to happen definitely in the next 12 months. Um, but as much as we would love it to be happening. Uh, but I think probably one of the biggest benefactories of it in the, the coming years will be the juniors that are currently playing at the club. Um, we've got – how many teams have we got currently, Simon? Oh, we've got five. Five, yeah. In what grades? So our, our um, well, in addition, we run kick clinics for the for the real Littleys, but the yep. um, Sanford Juniors teams – I've got an under sevens, an under eights, and under nines, um, <clears throat> which are mixed teams. And we've got an under twelve boys team and an under thirteen girls, which is actually a merged team with Jeps Cross, yep. who happen to have the same colours as us, which is good. R- working really well, and they won their first game on the weekend. So, Congrats, um, girls. yeah, um, and that's so that's just the beginning. It's been hard work just to get those uh, teams off the ground, but we've got a great bunch of parents. Um, and we've got kids now that have played well over 50 games for the club. Yeah. Just um, one thing I'm curious about is current players at the club. 
you know, uh, it's easy to fall into the trap of, you know, I rock up, I pay my fees, I play footy. But like, what would be some little ways that players at the club could help contribute to this redevelopment? Win some premiership, lads. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, Easier said than done, Simon. <laughs> uh, I think um, for current players, uh, you, you got to enjoy, you got to be enjoying the sport you're playing, right? So you enjoy it by um, mixing well with your mates. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're a, a footballer or a netballer or, or what have you, cricketer. Um, success does breed success. You know, so honestly, I'm a big fan of winning on the field. Um, that just helps the social environment, helps the trade over the bar, helps the social events and the recruiting new players. It just it just feeds on itself. Um, so I'd still anchor everything around doing well on the field. Um, but the type of club we are, the more we can get our family and friends involved is, is, is the answer as well. Um, it doesn't matter whether the family that live down in the southeast or, or wherever – um, get them involved because a lot of uh, feedback we've had over many years, the decades, that that parents that have had their kids come and play, they're so happy that they once they know uh, how their cl- the, the club is and how it's sort of um, treated their kids, they they're big supporters. I know my mum and dad personally like they they come down a little bit now um, and they love it. Like they really do get the sense that it you know we. Um, we position ourselves as the country club in the city, but like they honestly believe that and they go there and they say hello to people and everyone's friendly and they feel like they fit in. So I know exactly what you mean, but obviously um, it's hard because like a lot of our players' families are very spread, you know, got a lot of players from the Air Peninsula. EP, uh, Riverland, yeah. Mid-South-East or South-East um, General. So yeah, I get what you're saying though with all that. Um, I just wanted to uh, sort of walk through um, someone who I who would have been pretty influential in your time, Foss Williams. He was your coach for both the premierships. Yes, he was for mine, yep. Yeah, tell us a little bit about him. Um, we talked with Glads and he mentioned him briefly as well about how important he was for Adelaide Lutheran. What, what are your recollections of him? Well, I mean, he was the man at the time when I first started and as I said before, he came out to the training at Concordia. Um he, he he had a lot of attention to detail yep. and uh, he used to handwrite a lot of stuff. And I, one thing I often remember is, I don't know if it was once a season or multiple times a season, it seemed like a lot, he'd give you like a little report card. Okay. Uh, and it was handwritten as to things that you've you've done well and things you've got to work on. Um, he wouldn't always talk to you about it. He'd just say, here it is. Here it is. It's like going to your teacher. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, and so that was that was interesting, but it it worked. Um, but he was also very focused on recruitment, as we touched on earlier, and and uh, going to extra lengths, which yeah you know, we need to continue to do. Uh, recruitment doesn't start in January; <laughs> it starts often a couple of years before yeah. you can get someone across. Um, and uh, uh, and he was a, a genuine coach of of the club, I suppose, like a club coach. He had an influence over the A grade, obviously, but also how the B grade and C grade went. Yeah, so I suppose uh, I actually did speak to Foss uh, in the lead up to this, um, and he was saying I asked, Simon, uh, asked Foss what was Simon like as a player on the field, and he's like uh, very, very serious. Wore his his heart on his sleeve a lot of the time. Um, he reckons that you could have had a calling in coaching because you pretty much coached the entire team on the field, despite what Foss Foss wanted. He got to the stage where um, 
I think you were quite regularly calling for the runner Peter Beam at the time to asking him to make, uh, tell Foster to make moves. Got to the stage where Foster had stuffed Simon. Don't you dare go out to him. <laughs> <laughs> Keep a wide berth from Simon Peter. Um, I've got a counter to that. Oh, okay. uh, I ended up calling Beanie over without Foss knowing and trying to call the shots. <laughs> I said, Beanie, don't tell Foss, but this is what we're going to do. <laughs> How did that go down? Well, there's a little story with, with, with that. And I, I probably was a bit over the top sometimes <clears throat> with, um, and it got a bit serious. And I, I expected effort of everybody yep. and I used to get a bit grumpy, uh, especially when there were a couple of seasons we weren't doing as well. And one of those seasons probably towards the mid-90s, um, I remember we were playing a, against Hectorville and uh, I was just not happy. Yeah, I was probably just um, criticising people too much and we were losing. And I don't know whether, can't remember whether I walked off, just had a gutful and said, stuff this, or Foss you know, took me off saying, <laughs> you got to start behaving. Either way, I came off and I just walked straight to the change rooms you know, towards the end of the last quarter. Uh, and I just took my boots off and took my Guernsey and ready to have a shower and I was not happy. And then Beanie, the runner, comes in soon after and says, oh, you need to go back on. <laughs> I said, Beanie, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, you just need to go. And I don't know, someone might have got injured or something. And I thought, oh, God. So I've put my boots back on, Guernsey back on. I've run out there, didn't even speak to him. I just ran onto the ground. They said, just run on. And one and a half seconds later, I run into a marking contest and, and at the end of the marking toxic contest, my nose was on the other side of my face. I've broken it. <laughs> nice. yeah. It was just a smash. I thought that was just a bad day gone worse. Can't be any. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, no, Foss is right. I think what it like, um, from what you've described there, and I think it, I, I'm struggling to find it at the moment, but I think it came up uh, somewhere in our notes here, but um, you sound very similar, and I don't know what you think about this, Simon, Yeah, to Tim Kidney, who currently plays. Have you seen Tim play much? Yeah, I have seen Tim, and I used to play with his dad. Yes, yes, you, yes did. you did. He was in your 88 premiership team. Uh, I don't. He, I think he was gone by then, yeah, but uh, my first couple of years he was he was still playing. 86, he was still playing. Yeah, he Simon played in the 86 flag, yeah. uh, Paul or Kittles did. Yeah. Does that bring like... Um, you know, does that sort of warm your heart a little bit seeing, you know, Tim's dad play at the club and now here's Tim. Um, T, Tom Cowold's dad played at the club and TK's there now. Yeah, Rory Meagle. Yeah. I, I love it. I took a photo, um, three photos yeah, a week or two ago of um, current juniors players, uh, not at, you know, um, Tim Kidney's age, but the, yeah, the young kids yep. with their dads and, and, and mums actually. We've got, we got about 15. Yep. Um, and uh, it's magnificent. It also means you're getting old. <laughs> but you know, when you know you've, you've played with those guys and you can see their sons play. Um, and that's – I don't really know a lot about a lot of other clubs, but there's we probably punch above our weight in, in father-son type stuff and, and mother-daughter. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, so who is there at the moment? There's four that have got links to – uh, well, Finn Borges oh, yeah. was, I suppose. Uh, well, the, I played with big, dad too. Yeah, yeah. Big Bob, uh, Big Bird. You got the uh, TK, you got Kowald, you got the Meagles, uh, you got the Kidneys, and I think the fourth escape, escapes me at the moment. But yeah, strong, strong bloodstocks um, through the club. Yeah. Um, just want to move on to something a little bit different. We've done this with everybody we've interviewed. I call it Player Association. Um, so the idea being that I'm just going to throw you some names of guys you've played with or maybe um, played under or whatever, um, and just in like a really brief, concise summary, just whatever comes to your mind when I say their name. All right. So do you get the idea? I get the idea. Yep. Am I allowed to have more than one word? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yep. 
just you know a paragraph if you want. Um, so I'll start. Steve Temme, uh, one of the two best players never to win a BNF in the A grade. Can I just? I'm sort of breaking the format here a little bit. He was one of your captains. Yeah, he was, and yeah. one of my mates. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Since yes, school, yes. yeah, yeah. Yep. So tell us about Steve's leadership style. Curious to know. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, no, he was pretty straight up and down as a leader. Yeah. Um, he, he was uh, quite humble when I kept reminding him he couldn't kick on his right foot. <laughs> um, uh, and But he led by example, okay. just a gun player. That actually, yeah, and I'll... Continue with your vein of thought of sticking with Steve for this time. Being. You haven't talked to Steve before this, have you? I, I have actually oh, spoken no. to Steve. Um, he's actually asked me to ask you a couple of questions that we may touch oh. on a bit later on. But um, I don't think like I actually only just came across this about a month ago. Steve was actually playing sample uh, under 19s and resis at one stage while also playing Adelaide Lutheran, during, yeah. especially during the 86 Premiership. Um, he was like a studying on ball in that premiership as would he been eighteen year old I suppose yeah something like that. Um, what was he like actually as like a, a player? Oh, he well, you guys would remember, but there was a um, Woodville player called Ralph Sewer years ago, and they called him Zip Zap. And Steve was and he was a left footer, and Steve was exactly like that, really fast, yeah. um, gets the ball off the ground, and can zigzag out of all sorts of situations. Only on his left hand side, by the way, yeah. not on his right. Um, and he'd be able to drift forward and kick a goal. Uh, so he's just a classic rover type, really. Um, and he was a good player. I remember watching his first reserves game with Sturt uh, at Footy Park. Yep. Um, all right, so the second guy... Uh, Is that all Steve told you? Just, you no, went to speak I'll, to Steve we'll, and all he wanted to talk about his own we'll, uh, footy we'll career. We'll talk about some of the Steve <laughs> stuff a bit later on. We'll just go through um, the rest but of the But, yeah, players. we're just going to get through this player association. So the next one's uh, Tim Liebelt or Dudley. Yeah, Dudley... Uh, was such a good player, and I think if you go through this podcast and ask people in my era who was you know the best player they probably played at the club, most would say him. Yeah. Um, yeah, he could have been better because uh, he was Dudley. Uh, he was just pretty relaxed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he would probably once or twice a game be sitting on someone's head, taking a bizarre hanger. <laughs> um, he was only what? What is he? Six two? Oh, he'd be six three at least. I yeah. reckon. Six, yeah, four. but he'd still be. Rucking and, and winning taps. Yeah. He could tap it like a basketballer, you know, right down your throat. Um, we called him Blue Tack for a while because every time he, you know, it was one one grab. Yeah, stick. It would stick. <laughs> yeah. Um, he'd try and do these look away hand passes, which uh, th- they weren't as successful. Um, <laughs> but he could kick both sides, you know, 35 metres uh, both. Um, but he was a really good player. Uh, one thing I'll say about Duds is he's got what are those photos across the top of the? Are they for two hundred game players? Yeah, two hundred and uh, uh, associated. You know, like all the p- player portraits along yeah. the top yeah. of the. Yeah. Oh yeah, because he never. Yeah, okay. he's, he's got a. You know, there's all the like grizzly footballers with their arms folded for that photo. Duds has just got a what? Is it a Johnny Walker? Yeah, it's can? a Johnny Walker can, <laughs> just like a big goofy smile across <laughs> yeah. his face, and I think giving a thumbs up to the yeah. camera. Well, he still come from the area where you have a cigarette at halftime. Well. Probably quarter time and three quarter time for Dudley at the time, <laughs> but he we had to force him to play two hundred. Like he he retired at one ninety something. One ninety nine. Is that right? Yeah, I reckon. Okay, uh, I reckon on the on these photos it says one ninety nine plus one. Okay, well we just he 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 wouldn't. He's too nice a bloke. He wouldn't accept just sitting on the bench in the C grade to get a stat up for a game yeah. to to get him up there. I like that. I like that a lot actually. Um, next one, Shane Munchenberg. Well, that's funny. Munch was the other... When I said there was two people that the best players I played with and never win a BNF, Munch was the other one. 
Really? Because mm. Munch won an association, uh, association medal. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And he... And he, and he oh, stiff shit, Munch. Won, yeah, he won the VNF <laughs> volume. In 1992, uh, I reckon it was. I'm not sure. Might have been Dudley. Much I don't know. But, but Munch... Um, he was a bit like uh, there was someone called John Bracky Brattles as well. They started off at half back and then they ended up being on ballers. And Munch had sort of go gadget arms, like his arms were as long as his the rest of his body when he puts them up hand and he could take these marks that you would least expect. Um, it didn't look like a footballer. He looks in the nineties or eighties. He looks like he does now. Like he yeah. didn't. It <laughs> <laughs> does. Sorry, it Munch, does. but uh, yeah, we, we call that. Uh, I've got a sort of similar build. We call that wiry and athletic. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> you and Munch call it that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, he he was uh, he was very courageous, almost stupid courageous. If you know those yep. type of players, where they sort of put their body in the way, but perhaps not protect it, and he got injured a lot. Yep. And that's probably why he didn't win a BNF, well, maybe. He also got injured for the 91 grand final, wasn't it? Yeah, he missed yeah. out. There's a couple, actually. Uh, I reckon Brattles might have missed out as well. Yeah. Um, and that just shows the depth we had. Yeah, yeah. Uh, next guy, it was another 91 premiership hero, was Jeff Brereton. Yeah, Brer, um, uh when I said Dudley used to stand on people's heads, Brer didn't, but I reckon he used to uh, in his young years. Day. So by the time he came yeah. to us, he'd from Wyala, um, I reckon his body was starting to... to, to Weigh in a bit. Yeah, um, but you could tell that he could take a leap. Uh, really skillful, um, creative, excellent player, um, and yeah, enjoyed playing with him. Yeah. Last one. Last but not least, Chris Roger. Chris Roger. Your uh, brother. <laughs> did he play with us? Yeah, no, he did. Uh, well, he, he would have played... I reckon he played over 150 games, I'm not sure... Um, he, other than kicking the winning goal in the 91 grand final, uh, played a lot of A-grade games. Um, I do remember taking him to uh, Sports Med one day. He must have been playing B-grade this day, and I've turned up halfway through the B-grade game, and uh, there's, an, um, there's all this commotion. And I'm, I'm walking into the ground, and people are saying, oh, do you know, do you know, do you know? And I said, what? And then, you know, Chris is in the change rooms. And I walked in there, and his his nose was on the other side of his face. Yikes! Yikes! Um, it was a complete mess. Uh, so I had to take him to sports med, and I, and it, you know I love my brother, but I was worried about you know getting back in time to get ready to play. <laughs> um, uh, good player. He and Jan, big Jan Overdue, and used to feed him goals left, right, and centre. Uh, Jan would take a mark in the goal square, and, and Chris would be yapping around the you know looking for a little, little give it to me, give ball, it to me, yeah, in yeah. the goal square. <laughs> Well, that's um, I think that's a fitting way to end that because when I was talking to Steve during the week, um, he said, "Yeah, one of the players that you might have idolised most growing up might have been Kevin Bartlett. She had a real serious issue with hand passing the ball. Um, what what was your actual issue? Yeah, so so I, I completely disagree with that. Uh, <laughs> uh, and let me have a word before you speak to Steve on the on the podcast. I um, I, yeah, when you when you drift forward, you're there to kick goals, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, you're not there to give them off. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the key centre forwards and the full forwards, they're there to contest. Yeah. Bring the ball to market, ground. Bring it to ground and the other ones do the job. So that's yeah. the answer. Yeah. Um, another thing Steve asked me to ask you was, uh, what was the uh, what was your first car that you rocked up in the club with? First car? Yeah, first car. Do you remember it? Oh, at the club? Might have been a real shitbox holding Gemini. Oh, the Gemini. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Kermit Green. 
real six oh, mobile setup. No, it, was, uh, it, it would it'd go all right. <laughs> <laughs> go all right. But but the other the car after that was Stolly's old car was the Telstar that he sold me. Yeah. And uh, needed a, a, you a, good a deal, half no a broken <laughs> uh, half a broken golf club to keep the hatchback up the back. <laughs> and pretty much the first day I drove it was to a trial game out at uh, Mount Torrens or something like that. And it didn't make it back. Um, halfway back from Mount Torrens, I was. Was like, that intentional? Had, you didn't had like run it, it off the edge of the road or something. Well, but Stolly's driven past in his new car and started beeping the horn and shouting out the window <laughs> and didn't stop. Cheers, <laughs> stop. No, I like you, Stolly. You're my new boss. So, um, uh, and no, I think that was about it. That, oh, actually, no. One thing I did actually want to bring up um, that I another really impressive off-field sort of, uh, I suppose, achievement feather in your cap that you've um, you can lay your claim to is you spent three or four years side by side with big names like John Olson, Mark Rusciuto on the uh, the Sandford Commission, um, Sandford Board. Do you want to just walk us through how you actually got that role? Um, what was involved? What was it like playing or sitting right side, contributing next to these big heavy hitters? Um, yeah, well, that was, uh, I reckon, maybe 2014, 15, thereabouts. Um, and I used to do some business stuff and I did a bit of work for the Sanford. And one thing led to another and I they asked me to put my hand up and I got elected. Um, and it was three years uh, and it was... In, it was hard work. It yeah, was, I, I spent a lot of hours. Um, you met a lot of you know, interesting people. Uh, that was the time when Adelaide Oval was getting built. Um, we were negotiating with Port and the Crows and Sacker and the AFL as to how to carve up Adelaide Oval commercially. Um, we brought the um, AFL Reserves teams into the comp, which was pretty politically difficult. Well, that was um, yeah. diversive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be one word to put to that. Yeah, uh, and the CEO, we, we, he retired and we, we put it, got a new one in. So there's a lot happened. And the, but the, one of the biggest things that I think still, and, and I had a big involvement with, which I'm really proud of, is um, introducing Sample Juniors. So it used to be a junior comp around the, oh. used to be three different comps around the metro area. Yeah. And they were all, run differently, different rules, different this and that. It was just chaos. Yeah. And we consolidated them into one junior comp under the sandful. Yeah, right. That's yeah. a um that's a big that's a big sort of move to make. So I remember the cause I was tied up with North Adelaide, I think, around at that time doing a bit of Auskick development side of stuff and um, I remember that change coming in, and they were they had a couple of issues around that. But it's obviously gone through a right. Yes, yeah, <laughs> these people. Um that was a that was a big shift, a seismic shift within the actual junior community, and I mean it's what we operate underneath now. Um, would you call that a? How big of a success has that been overall? I, I reckon it's massive, and I'm a bit biased because I was you know a big person behind it. But people don't like change. No. Um, but because I wasn't as hooked up into the the Sanford area, I was had a bit of an independent thought, and was it sort of made sense. Yeah. Um, and it's done well, I think, and uh, even. The bad press that the comps got in the last few days with all the you know ugly parent syndrome again that's always existed yeah uh, but now there's an organisation that can get it get it under control nice. cool we're just about done there's one question I sort of like asking everyone we have on more so the people who've been at the club for a long time like yourself but do you still find like what you loved about the club when you were playing and this is the sports club as a whole not just the footy club but is that essence or that spirit still there with what, in your opinion, what you see with the current players at the club? It probably is. I'm thinking more of the footy yeah. players. I haven't seen, you know, the netballers play 
um, much at all, but uh, all the cricketers. Um, it seems I'm, I'm sort of pleasantly surprised with the um, the when I watch the guys train and you see the numbers out at training and the way that the they're coached and how they get together and, and the social things. That's really really good, and that's um, reminds me of you know when things were going well, uh, and that does breed success even if it doesn't breed it immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that essence is still there. Um, I just think we need to get overall. Uh, we need to step up professionally, um, governance-wise, um, and it's not easily done. But uh, for us to be around for another fifty years, we need to do it. Well, I think with guys like yourself and Tim Stoll's now at the helm, um, I think we're definitely tracking. We've got the right people. We're tracking the right direction. So you're saying that because he's new, your new boss. Well, yeah, but also <laughs> maybe. Um, but no, I, I think like the the amount of work that yourself and Tim have both put in over, or say over the last thirty five years, um, is just next level. It's it's a lot of things that go unseen um, behind the scenes, but. I know if uh, some people just knew a fifth of what you actually have done and what you've achieved, they'd be eternally grateful for yourself. And I hope that this kind of podcast just maybe sheds a little bit light uh, around the the massive impact that you've you've put in or made to the club in a, in a volunteer capacity for the last last period. So thank you. I get I get paid heaps. Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, I wonder no, if the no, club's thanks, in straw. So guys, thanks. And what you're doing with this and other things is fantastic. So um, keep keep it up. I just hope people enjoy it. I don't know if it's of any use to anyone. Oh, I'll send it to my mum. <laughs> yeah, it gives me in bulk uh, something to do for an hour on a, what are we, Wednesday, Wednesday night. night. Yeah. Um, that's about all we got time for, though. Um, thanks for that, Simon. Like, that was really interesting. Um, you know, uh, I think everyone we've interviewed so far has given us a bit of a different spin on how they're involved in the club. Um, so I enjoyed walking through, like, not just your playing career, but all that behind-the-scenes stuff because that's, if nothing else, that's probably the most important thing at the moment at the club is all the behind the scenes stuff for the redevelopment. And I just hope, like you said, um, and Bulks have said that the playing personnel are more aware of that now. So that wraps up our episode. Um, Bulks, thanks for taking the lead with this one. No, oh, my Appreciate pleasure. It. it was great for me. I just had to sit back. Usually I do all the intros and oh, stuff, okay. Simon. Okay. Um, and admittedly, I was a little bit unprepared for this one. I uh, had a bit going on at work and stuff, and luckily Bulks did a mountain of work for this episode. So all the questions and stuff, if they're bad, you can blame it on Bulks. Well, he Bulks. did his homework, spoke to the wrong <laughs> place. I'll speak to you later, Bulks. Thanks, boys. Yeah, and thanks very much for joining us, Simon. Cheers, pleasure.